We're going to look once again into the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3. I'm assuming that you are interested in understanding what the book of Revelation said, because remember, at the beginning, it says that it is the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now think of those two ideas. This is the Word of God. It's God tapping on the shoulder and saying, come here, I want a word with you. It's the Word of God. And if Jesus were to come and give his testimony, don't you think he'd be interested? And so that's how you approach the book of Revelation. It's God's word to you, and it is the testimony of Jesus. Now, John, as we all know, is very interested in the number seven. I won't get into an explanation of that. I'd love to, but I really don't have the time. And he now, in his vision, is instructed by the risen Lord Jesus to write seven letters to seven different churches. We read about these seven churches in chapters 2 and 3. Each of these letters follows a similar, if not identical, format. And I think it's no surprise to discover that there are seven sections in each of the seven letters. So my talk has 49 points. Isn't that exciting? Now, let me give you the seven sections of these seven letters. First of all, there are greetings. Now, we'll look, for instance, at the letter to the church at Ephesus, the first one, chapter 2, verse 1. Greetings. The angel of the church in Ephesus. Those greetings. Now, you'll see that each of the letters begins with a similar format. Secondly, there is a descriptive title of Jesus who is dictating the letters. Notice the word descriptive. It isn't just that we have titles for him, but they are descriptive of who Jesus is. And they are all drawn from the initial vision of Jesus recorded for us in chapter 1. So the second thing is descriptive title of Jesus, the writer of the letters. Thirdly, Jesus then does something absolutely fascinating. He gives some insights into the life of these churches. That is exciting. That is scary. To think that Jesus is evaluating the church. Now, of course, we are very good at evaluating churches. Well, this is what's wrong. This is what's wrong with the church. We don't go there anymore. We left that church. We go to this one because, hey, forget it. Forget it. Jesus is the one who is carefully evaluating the church. The fourth thing that he does is he gives some criticisms where they are necessary. Now, it's interesting to notice that he has no criticisms for two of the seven churches. Just a little point here. Before Jesus gives the criticism that is necessary, he gives the credit that is due a fundamental rule of thumb. Before you give criticism that is necessary, give credit where it is due. You know why? Because your criticism is much more likely to be accepted if you go about it that way. Years ago, we had a couple in the church here. They, they were my chief critics. That, that was their gift. That was their ministry here at, at Elmbrook. That they were wonderful people. They used to write to me regularly. I read their letters avidly, carefully, and always responded to them. 
One reason I like their letters, they were brief. The second reason I like their letters, they had three points. The third reason I like their letters was the first point was always a, an explanation of what they thought was wrong with Elmbrook. The second paragraph was how they thought what was wrong could be put right. And the third point was we are willing to do this, this, this and this to be part of the answer to the problem. Don't you love critics like that? They give credit where it's due before they give criticism where it's necessary. We could save all of, all of us a lot of trouble if we would follow the model of Jesus. So first of all, the greetings, then the descriptive titles, then insights into the church's life, many commendations, and then criticisms, and then fifthly, warnings and instructions. Jesus now speaks very, very firmly to the churches. We have many, many images of Jesus. We do not have a correct picture of Jesus if we leave out of it Jesus as Lord, evaluating, criticizing, warning, and instructing. It's all part of who he is. Sixthly, exhortations to listen carefully to what he's saying, to take it to heart, and to act upon what he says. And then seventhly, he finishes up with promises and assurance. In other words, on a very positive note. So there you have the outline of the letter. And I hope that you'll spend time filling in the gaps in what we are unable to do, but we're giving the framework so that you can do that. Now then, we won't go into details with the first part, the greetings. They are very, very obvious, except to say this, that there are different ways of understanding the letters to the seven churches. Some people say, well, it's really just a letter to the church universal, and because John is really into sevens, he sort of stylized it this way. I don't think we need to spend any time on that idea. Other people have a very interesting idea, and it is this, that the seven churches symbolize the church at different stages in its 2,000-year history. So, for instance, the church at Ephesus is the first century church. The church at Smyrna is the church going through persecution. The church at Pergamum is the church under the Emperor Constantine. The church at Thyatira is the church of the Middle Ages. The church at Sardis is the church of the Reformation. The church at Philadelphia is the modern missionary church. And the church at Laodicea is the church in its final desperate apostasy. Now, I think that's a rather fanciful way of looking at it, but there are commentators who view it that way. My view is simply this, that there really were seven towns and there were seven churches and there are seven messages to seven real churches. But the messages, as we will see, are relevant to the whole church down through the ages. Now, secondly, the descriptive titles of Jesus. We didn't have time to look into the vision of Jesus that John sees. It is very dramatic. It is very descriptive. It doesn't matter because many of the aspects of that vision are now used by Jesus to introduce himself. So we turn again to the letter to the church at Ephesus, chapter 2, verse 1. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars 
in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. Now, the seven stars and the seven gold lampstands need some interpretation. Fortunately, it is given to us in Revelation. The seven lampstands are the seven churches. Churches are expected to be a bright and shining light. That's not too complicated, is it? The seven stars, little more complicated. We don't know whether the seven stars are the guardian angels of the churches or whether they are the physical leaders of the churches. Some people think it's one, some people think it's the other. But the important thing is this, that Jesus introduces himself as the one who holds these stars in his right hand. In other words, they are secure in him. They are dependent upon him. And the second thing to realize is that Jesus, who holds the stars in his hand, secure and dependent upon him, is walking in the church. In other words, he is actively involved for a very good reason. He told Peter what it was. It's my church and I'm going to build it. We would expect Jesus to be holding the stars in his hand and moving among the lampstands. Now, if we move on to the second of the letters, the one that talks about the church at Smyrna, how is he described? This is in verse 8 of chapter 2. He is described as the first and the last, the one who died and came to life again. In other parts of the book of Revelation, he is called the first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega. Alpha and Omega being the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. We would say Jesus is from A to Z. He is the whole story. He is the beginning and the end and everything in between. Not only that, he is the one who died but rose again from the dead and lives in the power of an endless life. Now, do you see how if you take the descriptive titles and add them one to the other, you begin to get a very colorful, dramatic picture of who Jesus really is, who is working in the churches. The third letter to the church at Pergamum How is he described? Chapter 2 and verse 12. These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. He has the sharp, double-edged sword. Now, in New Testament times, to say that somebody had the sword means that they had the position of authority and power. The double-edged sword, well, that, that expression has come into contemporary, even colloquial English. We talk about a double-edged sword usually meaning that there are two sides to the issue, obviously. But in the scriptures, when it talks about the double-edged sword, the Bible, the scriptures, is like a double-edged sword. What it means is this, that when Christ wields his authority... His authority can mean blessing for some, that's one edge of it, and it can mean condemnation for others. For when Christ speaks, those who respond have blessing, those who react and reject come under the condemnation of his word. In fact, in the vision, the sharp two-edged sword comes out of his mouth. 
Jesus is the one in whom authority and power are invested, particularly in the words that come out of his mouth. And they bring on one edge blessing and the other they bring condemnation. That is the one who speaks to the church at Pergamum. The church at Thyatira, chapter 2 and verse 18, this is how he's introduced. These are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. The idea that his eyes are like blazing fire means that he has penetrating insight and wisdom into all things. The idea that his feet are like burnished bronze means that he is swift and smooth in reaction. He will move quickly to a situation and do what needs to be done. The church at uh, Sardis, chapter 3, verse 1, he is described as the one who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, similar to the one we've already seen Except here, he's not only holding the stars, he is holding the sevenfold spirit of God. In other words, he is moving among the churches. He is holding firmly onto those who are responsible for leading those churches, but he is imparting to them the sevenfold graces of the Spirit. If he didn't do that, nothing of any consequence would ever happen in the church of Jesus. The church of Philadelphia, chapter 3, verse 7, he is described as the one who is holy and true, the one who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. Here we have an idea that is taken from Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22, I think it is, and it's it's almost an exact quote from there. Key of David has this idea of the ability to open doors that are absolutely impossible for anybody else to open. He can get access into situations that no one else can enter. But by the same token, he can shut up opportunities that no one else can shut. And if he opens, no one can shut. And if he shuts, no one can open. He is the powerful risen Christ. And then finally, in chapter 3, verse 14, the introduction to the church at Laodicea, how is he described? He is described as the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Now, at the end of a prayer, it was customary in the early days of the church for the church to be led in prayer, and the congregation would say aloud, Amen. That means they would endorse what was being said. That's something we don't do at Elmbrook. It's something I wish we did do. Very often our prayers just finish with a dull thud. It would be wonderful if they finished with the congregation aloud saying, Amen. Amen? Amen. You see, you can do it. All you need is a little encouragement. Now, Jesus is the exclamation mark to what God is saying. Jesus is the amen. Jesus is the endorser of all these things. He is the one who says that's right to all that God is planning. And in addition to that, he has been a witness to who God is, utterly faithful, totally true. And on top of that, he is the one who is in charge of the creation of God. 
Now, Christmas time, we tend to think of Jesus a lot, and it's wonderful. What kind of Jesus do we talk about? A little baby who was born in a stable and laid in a manger. Well, don't let's stay with the nativity. Let's remember who he was before he came. Let's thank God that he came as a baby, but let's remember that he went through life and death and resurrection and ascended to the Father, and at this moment is at the Father's right hand in the place of ultimate, glorious, majestic authority. That was the message that these struggling little churches needed in the first century in Asia Minor. Descriptive titles of Jesus. All right, number three. Now we turn to the insights into the church's life. Now let's go back to the church at Ephesus, for instance. Chapter 2 and verse 2 and 3. I know your deeds. Now notice the expression, I know. Over and over again through the seven letters, that's what comes out. It introduces Jesus' insights and evaluation of what is going on in the church. So for instance, as far as Ephesus is concerned, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. That's a pretty good recommendation for the church at Ephesus, don't you think? Now, obviously, you could look at all those expressions, but let me just summarize it as follows. Jesus says, I know exactly what you're doing, and you're doing it very well, and I know what you refuse to do, and you're absolutely right to refuse to do it. That is basically Jesus' insight of commendation to the church at Ephesus. Chapter 2, verse 9, he talks to the church at Smyrna. And what does he say to them? I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are of a synagogue of Satan. What is he saying to these people? He's saying, I know the challenging circumstances under which you live. I know how desperately short of resources you are. You are fundamentally destitute as far as material things are concerned, but you are rich in spirit. You are strong in faith. You are having a particularly hard time from some of the people, a community of people who live in your city. Now, we all are aware of the fact that sadly, there has been a terrible history of something we call anti-Semitism. It is an abhorrent thing. It is totally wrong. But here we have the reverse. It is a synagogue of Jews who are desperately opposing this little struggling church. And the condemnation of Jesus is that these people really aren't behaving like Jews at all. They are, in effect, a synagogue of Satan. Jesus says, I know, but the good news is this. You're standing firm. You didn't cave in. You're desperately needy, you're desperately lacking, but you've got what it takes. Isn't it exciting to hear that Jesus evaluating a church 
and seeing what is worthy of commendation. Thirdly, chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, the church at Pergamum. I know where you live, he said, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Now, Pergamum was a governmental center for the Roman occupying forces. In all probability, that was one of the places where emperor worship started. This was a tremendous challenge to the young Christian church because they were expected to worship Caesar. But the Christians, on principle, could not worship Caesar. And they, as a result, were declared unpatriotic. They were declared atheists. They were, de- they were declared all kinds of unimaginable things and suffered very, very difficult circumstances indeed. In fact, one of their people was actually martyred. Antipas was killed by these authorities. And what did Jesus say about them? You didn't renounce your faith. You remain true to me. Tell you, people cave in pretty easily sometimes when their Christian faith is challenged. Not this little church. The church at Pergamum stood firm. Well, time's getting away on us, so I don't have time to go further through these insights into the church's life, but you can see the point. You can see how Jesus is moving among the lampstands. He is observing and evaluating, and he is giving the churches the benefit of his report card. The fourth dimension of these seven letters is what I would call criticisms of the church's shortcomings. Now then, let's go back to the letter to the Ephesians and chapter 2. And this is what he says. Verse 2, he's already said, I know your deeds, etc., etc. Verse 4, however, says something very different. Verse 4, he says, yet I hold this against you. Look in verse 14 of chapter 2, the church to Pergamum. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. Look at verse 20 of chapter 2. Nevertheless, I have this against you. Uh-oh. Now he's given them the credit that is due. He is in a position to give them the criticism that is necessary. Well, what kind of criticism does he have? Well, verse 4 of chapter 2, he tells the church at Ephesus, I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. You have forsaken your first love. Now, this has been addressed to a church. What does this mean? Well, I think it's very easy for us to find an analogy that would be relatively easy for us to understand. There is something wonderful about a couple meeting, falling in love, deepening in their relationship, becoming engaged with a genuine commitment to each other until after all the preparations are ready, they come to their wedding day and on the basis of their love, they commit themselves to each other for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to better or worse, till death parts them. And they then move into their marriage and live happily ever 
after. That's the theory. Now, what's the practice very often? Well, the practice very often is that they fall in love. They just can't get each other out of each other's minds. They can't bear to be away from each other. The relationship deepens. They get engaged. They get married. They have the most wonderful wedding. They go off into the freshness and the beauty and the delights and the sheer joy and exhilaration and excitement of a being married couple. But as the years go by, what happens? Well, as the years go by, sometimes they uh, just start taking each other for granted. As the years go by, they, they just begin to become increasingly selfish. As the years go by, they, uh, they become mildly unconcerned with each other. They drift apart. Now, they don't separate, they don't divorce, I'm not suggesting anything like that. It's just that they sort of settle down into an external, formal marriage. But like the wedding feast of Cana, the wine has run out. And all they've got in its place is stale beer. I don't think we need to go very far to understand the analogy here. That can happen to a church. That can happen to a church. Where all the excitement of knowing Jesus, all the excitement of loving Jesus, all the excitement and exuberance of committing to Jesus, all the excitement and the thrill and the sheer delight of abandoning ourselves to Jesus and being what he wants us to be and doing what he wants us to do and going where he wants us to go. That's how we start out. But as time goes on, the programs get into place. The organization comes into place. The budget is put into place. And everything is organized. And everything is beautiful. And the program goes on. It's just that the wines run out. And the love for Jesus is not the basis upon which people operate now. Sometimes it's a case of duty. Sometimes it's a matter of obligation. Sometimes somebody's got to do it. Somebody said, well, this is my ministry and I'm going to hold on to it. And where's Jesus? And where's the love for Jesus? That is the criticism that Jesus has of this wonderful church in Ephesus. Remember what he said about them. I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance. You cannot tolerate wicked men. You've tested those who claim to be apostles, but are not, and you've found them false. You have persevered, and you've endured hardships for my name, and you've not grown weary, but you've lost your love for me. That's a pretty heavy criticism. Well, he goes on in the same vein. Look in the church in Pergamum, chapter 2. Verse 14. Nevertheless, he says, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, this needs a lot of explanation very, very quickly. Balaam was a guy who got into all kinds of difficulties with the children of Israel. He was a bit of a traitor. He went to the king of Moab, one of the enemies of the Israelites, and he said to the king of Moab, let me tell you the Achilles heel of the Israelites. He didn't use that term, but if he'd known it, he would have done. Let me tell you their weak spot. He said, just 
entice them and seduce them with idolatry. And you've got them. They are weak at that point. In the church in Pergamum, there are some people who are members of the church, and this is what they're doing. They're doing what Balaam did. They are enticing people. They are seducing people to get away from a firm, solid, primary commitment to Jesus. And they are allowing them, even encouraging them, to get into all kinds of idolatry. You say, what in the world was happening? Well, what is idolatry? Idolatry is simply the putting of a created thing in the place of the creator. Putting a created thing in the place of the creator. Beginning to be more interested in a material thing than the one who made the material available. To be more interested in the temporal than the spiritual. And you know what can happen in a church? A church can get involved in so many different things that the worship of the living Lord gets pushed to the side because everybody's got excited about all the other things and they, in the end, take God's place. And that, my friends, is idolatry. That, my friends, is idolatry. Jesus has got some pretty substantial criticisms. Church at Ephesus has lost their first love. The church in Pergamum is tolerating false teaching that is leading to all kinds of idolatry, which in the end will be immoral behavior. All kinds of other things are going on in the other churches, particularly the church at Laodicea. Notice what Jesus criticizes the churches of Laodicea about. This is what he says in verse 17. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth and don't need a thing. You don't realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. In other words, his criticism of the church of Laodicea is this. You have got such an exaggerated opinion of your own importance and significance and effectiveness that is totally misleading. That in actual fact, you are not even close to being the church you think you are. That's what Jesus says to the church in Laodicea. Now we get number five into the warnings and the instructions. I can identify these for you very, very quickly. The warnings and instructions that Jesus gives to all the churches with the exception of Philadelphia. The warnings are basically, it's time for repentance. With the exception of the church at Sardis, where the emphasis is, it is time to wake up to reality. And also in Laodicea, where the instruction is, it is time to deal what is obviously wrong, and I am the one who can help you deal with it. Three warnings and instructions. The warnings and instructions are very powerful indeed. Notice what he tells the church at Ephesus. Verse 5. Remember the height from which you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Listen. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. In other words, Jesus says, if this church, this church at Ephesus, with a wonderful history, remember this is the church read about in Acts, 
This is the church where Timothy ministered. It's the church where John the Apostle ministered. It's the place where where Paul spent two years of his life. It is the church that we read about in the epistle to the Ephesians, but it has lost its first love. And Jesus says, unless there is a massive repentance in the church at Ephesus, the church at Ephesus will cease to be a church. Now, I have been to the site of ancient Ephesus on many occasions. Unfortunately, we weren't able to worship in the church there. I wasn't invited to preach in the church there for one very simple reason. There is no church there. In fact, there is no city there. In fact, Ephesus is nothing but a series of barren hillsides from which they are unearthing the ruins of a massive civilization. The lampstand was removed. And Jesus said, Jesus said, unless the church of Jesus Christ is willing to listen to what I'm saying about her shortcomings and is willing to take them seriously and repent and do business with me, the day will come when that church will utterly and totally lose its effectiveness. That's what he said. Now remember that he is speaking to a struggling little church that is dealing with all kinds of external problems. But he isn't backing off. He's saying, I am more concerned about what's going on inside your hearts than I'm concerned about what is coming at you from the outside. Warnings and instructions. Number six, there are exhortations to listen to what he's saying, to heed what he's saying and act upon it. But then number seven, there are promises and assurances. Now, notice the promises and assurances. Chapter two and verse seven. To him who overcomes, I will give. Verse 11. He who overcomes will not be hurt. Verse 17. To him who overcomes, I will give. To verse 26, to him who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give. You just go through the letters, what do you find? To him who overcomes, to him who overcomes, to him who overcomes, to him who overcomes. Please, you Bible students, tell me what you're talking about. (laughs) To him who overcomes, to him who overcomes, to him who overcomes, to him who overcomes. What's he talking about? You got it. You got it. He is talking about overcoming. He's talking about overcoming. He is saying, you've got problems inside. You've got problems outside. You can go under if you're not careful. But you are not to go under. For I am the one who holds the church, who holds the seven spirits of God. I am the one who has the word of truth. I am the one who is risen and lives in the power and endless life, remember? And I am in your midst. You are in my power to be overcomers, not sinker-unders. And he said it is to those who are the overcomers that there are untold blessings in store. Those who are the overcomers, there are untold blessings in store. Well, up until now, he's been talking to churches in general. I want you to notice now, right at the end, 
of the letter to the church of Laodicea. This is what Jesus says. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. This is, this is the context in which this well-known verse is found and from which it is usually taken out. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will spend time with him and he with me. What's the appeal of Jesus? The appeal of Jesus is this. Oh, my dear churches. Oh, my dear churches. Some of you are so overwhelmed by the terrible problems you've got outside, you're losing sight of me. Oh, my dear churches, some of you have been so seduced by the things that are creeping into your thinking and into your relationships, you're losing sight of me. Oh, my dear churches, some of you are so busy serving me, you've forgotten me whom you serve. Why don't you let me back in? Why don't you let me be who matters? You know something? I have found it very interesting that when you talk to Christians, they are very, very often very happy to talk about all kinds of issues and all kinds of activities and all kinds of ministries. But it's the hardest thing in the world to get them just to talk about Jesus. Just to talk about Jesus. I remember going to a church in England years ago. Got there early. Little fellow was there waiting for me to come. It was a cold, drafty little church. He took me into a very cold, dismal little room off the side of the church. Sat down there and he started to tell me about the church fabric. And the problems they had with it. And he told me about how they needed new carpet but they couldn't afford it. And he told me about the problems they were having with the organ. And he told me about the choir master and how they'd fired him. And then he told me about the pastor who was no good. And he told me about the finances that were in dire, dire straits. And he told me about the problem, the vandalism that they had. And he went on and on and on for about half an hour, nonstop, just telling me all these things. And in the end, I thought he seemed to be running out of material. And so I wanted to encourage him. And so I said to him, tell me about the Lord Jesus. Tell me about the Lord Jesus. And he jumped up as if I'd kicked him on the ankle. He said, come on, it's time we were going. He had nothing to say. He had nothing to say. And the appeal of Jesus to these churches is this. <laughs> Listen, for a variety of reasons, for a variety of reasons, the churches are continuing. The ministry is going on. Everything's happening the way it's supposed to happen. There's just one fundamental problem. You're losing sight of me. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anybody hears this, if anybody gets the message, individually, he could become the one who will open the door and let me back into their lives in a new and a fresh way. Invite me into the community of believers in a new and a fresh way so I might be able to be myself in the church. Oh, and by the way, just one final thought. It's interesting that the appeal goes to an individual. If any individual hears my voice, the answer to the church's problems is what? What I do with God's word. 
People would sometimes come to me and say, Elmbrook this and Elmbrook that and Elmbrook the other. I listened to them because that's what they paid me for, a senior pastor. But then I would ask them a question. What is Elmbrook? What is Elmbrook? Is it some vague, ill-defined organization? Or is it you and me? Is it you and me? And the answer is, it's you and me. And therefore, if anything needs to be rectified in a church at any one time, it will be rectified as individuals get in touch with Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we think about you being interested in the church because it's your church, being active in the church, being deeply involved in the life of the church, evaluating, commending, criticizing, warning, exhorting the church. It all comes down in the end to me. Am I going to heed the word? Am I going to hear what is being said? Am I going to act upon it? Repent where is necessary. Lay hold of what is promised. Be what I'm called to be. Lord, don't let these thoughts slip away from my heart and mind. Help me to heed them. Because you've told us already, as we take them to heart, so the blessing will come. Lord, there may be some people who have never opened their heart's door for the first time to the risen Christ. And I pray that even now they would say, oh, come to my heart, Lord Jesus. Come in today. Come in to stay. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. And we know that you hear and answer prayers like that. We pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus, the first and the last.